You just heard from Dr. Naomi Graber sharing her insight on two parodies of the popular Broadway musical Hamilton. Hamill Trump, created by sketch comedy group Rad Motel, and Jeb, an American Disappointment, a crowdsourced parody created on Google Docs. Joining us in the studio today, along with Dr. Graber, are Tracks on the Trail co-editor, Dr. James DeVille, professor of music at Carleton University in Ottawa, and Dr. Alyssa Harbert, assistant professor of music history at DePaul University, who focuses on issues of cultural memory, race, nationalism, and politics in dramatic productions for the stage and screen. I am Dana Gorzelani-Mostak, Assistant Professor of Music at Georgia College and creator and co-editor of Tracks on the Trail. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today in the studio. Glad to be here. It's great to have you. So I'd like to start, Naomi, by asking a question with regards to your essay. As Georgia College student researcher Sarah Kitts cited in our opening segment, the researchers at Tracks on the Trail have noted an uptick in stage and screen music on the trail. There's certainly been a lot of chatter about Trump's use of stage music in particular. You might know he's used Pavarotti's version of the uh, popera hit Nessun Dorma at several events. He's used some tunes from Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats and the Phantom of the Opera. What do you make of Trump's choices? Those choices are absolutely fascinating. I, I'm not sure that it has a lot to do with the music itself and more what this music signifies. You know, Trump, when I think about Trump and I think about the Trump brand. There's two words that really come to mind. He, he's constantly saying that his buildings and his casinos are classy and that they are luxurious. And these are two words that really also describe the Broadway musical. And not just any Broadway musical. These two shows, Cats and Phantom of the Opera, are these big, huge spectacles. And they're so enormously popular. And when people go to Broadway musicals, they're expecting this beautiful, lush, classy experience. It's also something that people expect when they go to opera. And so I'm not sure that he's really using the music for the sound itself, but more, you know, what the music represents. You know, he's all about kind of class and luxury and musicals and Broadway and opera are signifiers of this, but it's a very middle class, class and luxury. He's not playing, you know, Handel operas. He's not (laughs) playing Wagner. He's playing these popular opera hits. So it's not just class and luxury, but it's class, luxury, and accessibility that's all sort of wrapped up in these kinds of music. Thank goodness he's not playing Wagner. (laughs) I think that probably wouldn't go over well. Well, you know how he plays an excerpt from the score from the film Air Force One as he disembarks from his private plane. I don't know, maybe he'll play Wagner at some point. He could always use Ride of the Valkyries. (laughs) (laughs) At some point. (laughs) I wouldn't put it past him. I also think it's very interesting that he's chosen to feature a British musical composer. Obviously, Phantom of the Opera has become enormously popular in the United States and around the world, but Andrew Lloyd Webber and his lyricists are British. I read that Lloyd Webber used to own an apartment at Trump Tower from 1989 to 2010, um, as does another famous British musician, Elton John, who Trump has also played at his rallies. So the two clearly know each other, and Trump seems to be a big fan of Lloyd Webber in general. In his 2004 book, which was called Think Like a Billionaire, Trump stated that his favorite Broadway show is Evita by Andrew Lloyd Webber, which I think is just fascinating because Evita is about 
climbing one's way to the top through sex and money and politics. Um, and Ava and Juan Perón are, are these populist. Juan Perón is a, is a populist dictator of Argentina, not quite a fascist, but certainly edging towards it. And at one point in Evita, Eva and Juan Perón sing that politics is the art of the possible, which I think is such a Trump idea. So no wonder Trump loves it. You know, it's really interesting that you bring up Evita because I think it's, it's no one's really talked about this, but I think Evita is probably the closest cousin to Hamilton that there is out there. They're both shows about a poor person's rise to power. They both have these very ambivalent narrator figures that I find fascinating, Aaron Burr and Hamilton and Che and Evita. And they both use this very sort of pop-based score to show these historic rises to power. I think it's a really fascinating comparison. And to know that Trump really likes this show just tickles me a little bit. <laughs> now, Trump, I don't think, has seen Hamilton yet. But I'd love to see some selfies of Lin-Manuel Miranda with Trump and Melania. That would be amazing. <laughs> One word that hasn't come up yet is uh, theatricality. Yet I think that la links all of these works together. And, and certainly you get a sense from Trump's um, appearances that they're all very staged and very well aware of what's going on, uh, what music is being played and so on, but in a spectacular way. I think that this idea of theatricality is key to Trump's campaign. He knows he's putting on a show. Everything he does, right from the music to the way he sets his stage, is designed to both entertain and inform. He knows that he needs to grab the public's attention before he can get to anything else and impress. And I think the same is very true of Hillary Clinton, who has to perform exactly the way that she's been taught to, to best position herself for her audiences to counteract some of the perhaps sexist presumptions that have been placed upon her over her long political career. Yes, very true. Alyssa, do you have any questions for Naomi? I do, Naomi. Thank you so much for that wonderful essay. I found it really interesting. Um, one of the traits that Hamilton and the producers and countless other Broadway shows have in common is that they're all set in New York City, and they all have what we could call New York City values, as, <laughs> as Ted Cruz infamously put it. Do you think that this plays a part in how appealing these shows are as vehicles for parodies of Donald Trump? Oh, absolutely. I think that that's a really good point. Um, I think that New York is also a major part of Trump's brand. New York is the classiest, most luxurious city in the United States, if not the world. And it is also the center of the American entertainment industry, along with Los Angeles. Uh, and so Trump himself is very identified with New York. He speaks with a very strong New York accent. And so using Hamilton and the producers really does emphasize this New York quality. But the, the way it, they do it is very, very different. And that's what I find fascinating. So I think this all goes back to the idea of ironic distance versus ironic closeness. Um, when mm. you think about Hamilton, uh, Trump is not someone you associate with the poor black neighborhoods of New York, uh, but that is where hip hop comes out of. It, it grew up partially in Compton, Los Angeles, but also in Brooklyn, New York, back when Brooklyn wasn't such a nice place to be. And so there is this 
sort of silliness to seeing Trump, this very rich, very white man, rapping because it's a style that's not really associated with him. When you think about the producers, Broadway is also very much part of New York, but very much part of a different New York. It's part of this middle class, middle to upper class New York, a New York that thrives on luxury, a New York that thrives on the new. And so that emphasizes the kind of ironic closeness between Trump's vision of New York and the idea of the presidency. As I said in the essay, the producers is all about theater. And we like to think that politics isn't theater. We like to think that there's something a little bit more (laughs) genuine going on. But playing up Trump's New Yorkness through the lens of the producers really highlights his, what some people see as sort of his skeeviness, his deviousness, and his cheap theatricality. I'd like to just consider the issue you mentioned, the uh, uh, Trump's accent, and maybe bring Bernie's accent into play, because we would associate Bernie also with New York City, but with a different part, perhaps also a different class. What do you think about that? It's interesting. Both candidates have emphasized their accent on the trail, particularly the word huge, which they both pronounce huge. (laughs) But again, they're they're sort of emphasizing very different things. Trump is emphasizing his New York as classy, New York as the sort of center of the world, where when Bernie does it, he's emphasizing his Brooklyn roots, his working class roots, New York as the scene of the folk revival. Bernie's been very associated with folk music and that Mm. sort of thing. It's such a, New York is such a diverse place. You can really find almost any community there. And it's one of the things that makes it such a good stand-in for the rest of America. Yeah, and well, even Hillary can claim some part of New York as her heritage. Hillary sometimes will slide into a bit of a southern accent from her many years in Arkansas when she's speaking in the south. Um, I'm down here in Texas and I've noticed that every now and then Hillary will go with a a more southern or rural sounding form of speech and also of course Obama has been known to do a bit of code switching depending on his audience. I I have a question for you as well, Alyssa. Um, So on June 4th, uh, Richard Primus penned a very thoughtful article in The Atlantic titled, Will Lin-Manuel Miranda Transform the Supreme Court? Indity states, and this is a quote, how judges imagine the original meaning of the Constitution depends on their intuitions, half historical, half mythical, about the founding narrative. If you can change the myth, you can change the Constitution. Hamilton is changing the myth. And that's the end of the quote. You know, certainly the article sort of speaks to music's potential to act as a catalyst for shaping political policy. You know, the musical Hamilton's rise to prominence is, is coincided with, you know, what will be a change in composition of the Supreme Court, but but also the 2016 presidential election. Alyssa, I know you're at present writing a book that explores depictions of U.S. history and Broadway musicals and how they may intersect with the politics of their time. So I was hoping that you could maybe shed some insight on how this particular musical, with its immigrant hero and multi-ethnic cast, has impacted American perceptions of presidential politics and U.S. history. I think that the question is about how we tell our founding story. As they sing in Hamilton, who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Um, Was the American Revolution something that happened long ago that was planned and fought um, by great men, by the greatest 
men, men far greater and wiser than we are? Or is the revolution a process that's ongoing, that's never finished? Is it a fight that has happened before and that could happen again? I think that when we see our so-called founding fathers singing and dancing on the Broadway stage, we can start to empathize with them. We see ourselves in them and we realize that we're not so very different. One of the goals of Hamilton, as well as the goal of the authors of another Broadway musical, 1776, is to take these historical figures off their pedestals and make them no longer cardboard cutouts, but make them real and alive and show them as flawed and very real people. And I think that Hamilton's multi-ethnic casting especially allows more and more people to identify with and empathize with the leaders of long ago, who were, of course, white men due to the power structures in place at the time. So we're looking at what Lin-Manuel Miranda has called America Then, told by America Now. And these shows give us a sense of ownership of the revolutionary era and of our mythical shared heritage. I also want to note that Broadway is more culturally relevant and a bigger part of the conversation now than it has been in several decades, really since the 1960s, the end of the so-called golden age of Broadway. Well, we are in a new golden age of Broadway. It's making more money than it ever has. Uh, the New York Times reported that Broadway theaters grossed a record-breaking $1.3 billion this past season, and that there were a record-breaking 13 million-plus visitors to Broadway shows. And Hamilton's a very big part of this unprecedented success. Speaking of 1776, which is a show I know is very, very near and dear to your heart, Alyssa, I have a, a question for you. Hamilton is very clearly indebted to 1776. And in fact, Lin-Manuel Miranda directly references 1776 in Hamilton. So I just want to play these two little clips. Here is the opening of 1776. It's everybody in Congress shouting down John Adams, who's sort of the lead player of 1776. And now here is a clip from the second act of Hamilton. This is Alexander Hamilton reacting to the election of John Adams in the musical Hamilton. Sit down, John, you fat mother And it's interesting that you bring up the end of the 1960s because I think that's when 76 played. So could you talk a little bit more about the relationship between these two shows? Yes, I think that these shows occupy a similar place in our culture in some ways. Most people don't remember it now, but 1776 was an immensely popular and successful show. Um, it received overwhelmingly, I would say almost unanimously positive reviews in the press. It was attended by every celebrity and politician of its day and won four Tony Awards, including Best Musical. Um, Richard Nixon invited the whole cast to perform it in total at the White House, making it the first Broadway musical to be performed in full at the White House. Mm just as the Obamas invited the cast of Hamilton to perform there a few years ago. So that was in 1972. So we're looking at a Broadway musical that was, in its time, extremely successful and beloved and has been ever since then. Um, in fact, 1776 has experienced a huge boom in popularity, in part by riding on Hamilton's coattails. And recent productions 
have tried to make the show look and feel more like American now with mixed gender and all female casts, mixed race casts, mixed ethnicity, and all sorts of different groups of people have become involved in 1776. And there was just a recent, just a few months ago, an Encores production in New York City of 1776 with a mixed gender and mixed race cast. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda loves 1776, and he has often tweeted and written about it, and he said that he didn't include John Adams or Benjamin Franklin in Hamilton because their stories had already been told so well by Sherman Edwards and Peter Stone in 1776. Um, I'd also like to add that both of these shows were by politically progressive authors, but neither show takes an obviously liberal stance at the expense of alienating potential audiences. So they're not heavy-handed about their political opinions, but they do cloak these liberal views in some coded ways that peek out sometimes, such as Hamilton and Lafayette singing, Immigrants, We Get the Job Done, or the snarky anti-conservative song, Cool, Cool, Considerate Men in 1776. Um, 1776 and Hamilton both were shows that are beloved by liberals and conservatives alike. I'm already seeing some very positive reviews of Hamilton on more conservative news sites and blogs. So I think that the parallels between these two shows run very deep. And I love the fact that the popularity of Hamilton has given a chance for more people to see and experience and fall in love with 1776. I have a question that I think applies to both of you. As you've discussed, uh, Hamilton is in a direct lineage from 1776, but they both share a heritage of American exceptionalism and contemporary music style that's much older. And can you talk about the precedents from musical theater and what they tell us about the historical representation of American politics on stage? And Naomi, I know you've done some research in the early 19th century. And then, Alyssa, you touch on more recent developments. So maybe you could both uh, comment on that one at a time. Sure, I'd love to. This gives me a chance to talk about one of my favorite shows out there. It's called The Indian Princess or La Belle Sauvage. Uh, and it was written at the turn of the 19th century by a man named John Bray. Uh, and it's not labeled a musical. That term didn't really exist then. It's labeled a melodrama. But what it really is is a musical. It has dialogue and it has songs interspersed throughout. This is the first retelling that we know of of the Pocahontas story for the mm. stage. Uh, it's a very, very old American story, of course, familiar to many of us from Disney. Um, but again, it uses musical theater to tell an American foundation myth, as 1776 does, as Hamilton does. And of course, like many shows at the turn of the 19th century, it does not paint the Native Americans in a great light. With the exception of Pocahontas, they are portrayed as savage. Pocahontas yearns to be civilized. And that comes out in the music. The music for the Indians is very, very simple, whereas the music for the Settlers and Pocahontas is much more complex. But again, it does it using popular music of the era. Mm. The American settlers sing what's called a glee in three-part harmony, something that people sitting at home when they had nothing to do after dinner might do. Um, it, it comes out in Pocahontas's arias, which have this sort of quasi-operatic style, which colonists could then purchase as sheet music and play at home. This idea of telling American history 
through popular music on the stage dates back to even before Broadway, to the very, very earliest cultural institutions of the country. That's really interesting, and the the fact that they would use vernacular to uh, set the stage then and to make this story more approachable and um, then to be disseminated by the people who were in the audience. Yeah, that's very interesting. And since the beginning of the 20th century, there have been lots and lots of history musicals. Many of them were quite poorly received. Um, they would have been big flops that no one's ever heard of, but a few have done quite well. Uh, and as Jim said, almost all of them use the music that was popular at their own time rather than the music of the period that they're representing. Um, so Rogers and Hart, the same Richard Rogers who would go on to write shows like South Pacific and The Sound of Music, Rogers and Hart wrote a show called Dearest Enemy in 1925, which is a love story about a British soldier and an American patriot woman during the Revolutionary War. George and Ira Gershwin won a Pulitzer Prize for their 1931 show, Of the I Sing, which is a parody of a presidential campaign. In fact, oh. I, wish, I wish we could have a, a big uh, revival of Of the I Sing right now. <laughs> I would certainly go see it. Uh, I Absolutely. think it would also make a, a wonderful tracks essay piece if you're interested. It would. <laughs> um, Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnick, the team that wrote Fiddler on the Roof, also won a Pulitzer Prize for their political musical Fiorello in 1959 about the oh, life yeah. of New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. And then for the U.S. Bicentennial in 1976, the Broadway greats Leonard Bernstein and Alan J. Lerner wrote a show called 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that uh, parodied the presidents and first ladies of the 19th century. Um, but that show flopped, although you can hear a great recording of the songs on an album called The White House Cantata, so you should check that out. It's wonderful Bernstein music that you might not have ever heard before. Um, and then Sondheim, Stephen Sondheim, took up this subject of American political history and the presidents in Assassins to a very creepy effect. I just saw a wonderful community theater production of Assassins up in Indianapolis near where I live. Um, and then just recently we had Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, which is a rock musical. The music sounds a lot like Green Day. Um, and now we have Hamilton. And what all of these shows share uh, is not only their use of contemporary popular musical styles, but also the cognitive dissonance of singing and dancing historical figures, which mm. ends up delighting audiences um, and sometimes giving them a sense that they've learned something about history and also shared some of the emotions that these people of the past might have felt. I just want to add one more show to that wonderful list. Uh, 1938's Knickerbocker Holiday by Kurt Vile. Uh, it's another show that deals with this American origin story. It takes place in New York. This is the New York of the 17th century when it was New Amsterdam, and it's another show that deals with the immigrant founding of America. Uh, these are Dutch immigrants. There's an entire song that's called How Can You Tell an American? But it's interesting that you bring up the fact that these people come away from these shows feeling like they've learned something. I remember watching 1776 in my elementary school class. Me too. And, yep, <laughs> uh, and I know that Hamilton has opened its doors to a lot of high school students in New York. Um, what makes these musicals such a good tool for education? And is there something about the musical itself that lends itself to these kinds of uses in the classroom? 
I think that musical theater brings these moments in time to life in a way that's very appealing to kids and teenagers. Uh, the energy of a Broadway musical, as we know, is so over the top, and the dramatic intrigues are made to feel very intense, even though we already know the ultimate outcome of these historical stories. Theater is riveting, and musicals are memorable, and what could be better for education than something that's riveting and memorable? Uh, 1776 was marketed in its time as educational both for adults and children and its songwriter the composer lyricist Sherman Edwards was in fact a former high school history teacher who had majored in history at Cornell and NYU and he and the book writer Peter Stone both had a mission to teach Americans about the revolution they were dismayed by how the founding story had been taught in schools and they wanted to bring these historical figures off their pedestals with music and humor. So they market it as part of your patriotic duty and education as an American. And it worked. Um, not only did thousands of school kids see 1776 when it was on Broadway, uh, but in the nearly 50 years since then, kids have been shown the film version in their history classes, and it plays on TV every year around the 4th of July. I would say that 1776 is still a big part of our cultural memory and several generations of Americans have learned something about the Founding Fathers from this Broadway show. Hamilton is also teaching kids today, um, kids and teenagers, not only the names and achievements of some of our great historical figures, but also what it might have felt like to be an immigrant orphan writing his way up the ladder of power. Or what it felt like to be a woman whose job is to marry rich or raise her children while her husband is off serving his country. And I think that the musical format can teach us more than just facts. It can teach us feelings and cultivate historical empathy, which in some ways is even more important than facts. We probably need to, to wrap up there. So I, I want to thank you all for being in the studio today with us. Uh, so you heard from Dr. Alyssa Harvard, Assistant Professor of Music at DePaul University, uh, Naomi Graber, Assistant Professor of Musicology at the University of Georgia, and Jim DeVille, Professor of Music at Carleton University. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. Yeah, thank you. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for your wonderful contributions. This is excellent.